things about church when I was growing up as a little kid was when the, uh, when the missionaries would come home from Papua New Guinea. You know what I'm talking about? Because you'd get to hear all those stories about eating bugs and snakes and all that stuff. It's pretty cool stuff. And I remember just as a, as a child thinking, how did they do that? This, this one family, the Furcos, they were out in the middle of uh, the jungle in Papua New Guinea uh, trying to write a, a New Testament Bible for a, peop, a people group who, who uh, didn't have a written language. So they were making up an alphabet and that just sounded like impossible to me. And I thought, how can you even do this? And, and uh, you know, they, they wrote an alphabet and they... They, they started to uh, catalog the language. And, and then I remember being impressed that they would say, well, it's actually harder than that. The alphabet's not the hard part. I mean, how do you uh, begin to tell people who live in the tropics things like uh, God can, can wash your sins away so that you're whiter than snow? <laughs> how do you communicate that? Tonight, uh, in our series called Holy Encounters, we come up uh, against God once again in the person of Isaiah. He meets God, encounters the purity of God's holiness, and, and quite frankly, I feel a little bit like an islander, a little bit like maybe we're all living on a tropical island trying to understand that, that snow-white purity of God. Can we even comprehend it? I know as, as I uh, studied and I thought this week and prayed, I thought, what do I even know about this? The, the purity, the, the holiness of God. Would you join me? Let's pray and ask God once again to reveal himself to us. Father, we have uh, proclaimed it in song. You are a holy God. And we declare it in prayer right now. You are a holy God. Father, with our minds and with all the understanding that you would allow us tonight, we, on, we want to know you, our holy God. Help us, Father. This is beyond us. As people who struggle with sin, as people who live in a, in a destructive, sinful world, this is beyond us. We, we beg you to help us understand your word and to understand who you are. We thank you that you want us to know you so that we might love you and share relationship with you. So we trust you tonight for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He lived about the 8th century B.C. And he was a prophet to the kings of the southern tribe of Judah at a time when the northern kingdom was falling, taken into captivity to the the empire of Assyria. Isaiah was a, a prophet during the reign of several kings, and we find that he encounters God one day, and he sees the, the majesty of God's holiness and the purity of God's holiness. We've read it already, but it, it's good to focus on this again. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. Each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. Isaiah encounters God and he quickly learns some of the things we talked about last week. That, that Moses 
experienced right away, though Moses met God in the desert in the form of a a burning bush or from within a burning bush, God was there. And yet we see as well, as we talked about last week, that God is majestic in his holiness, and he sees this throne. It's, it's very high, and it's exalted. It's, it's lifted up, and the, that impression comes to him quickly, that God's holiness means he is in a class of his own. He is exalted, and there, and there are these creatures. And this is something you, you probably don't want to meet in a, in a dark alley. Uh, well, I don't know. I suppose maybe it would be safe, but it would be scary anyway, right? One of those kinds of things. These creatures are very interesting. They have six wings, two sets at a time. Yeah, three sets of two. And and, uh, we're told that that with two of them they fly, and that makes sense. With two of them they cover their face, and two they cover their feet. Now, now, uh, commentators and expositors and theologians have come up with a lot of things that, that maybe it means that they cover their feet and their heads, some, some pretty imaginative stuff, some things I couldn't quite buy into. But, uh, but one thing that's common that most people see is that they're, they're being humble. Remember how last week Moses was told to take off his shoes? Maybe something similar here as they're covering their feet, that part of us that has the most contact with the earth as opposed to heaven they cover their feet in, in humility. And they cover their face. Remember how Moses fell face down? We sense later that Isaiah probably might want to cover his face. And, and so whatever is going on here, they are, do seem to be expressing humility. And the fascinating thing is these are, these are holy creatures. They're, they're creations, but they're holy. They're dedicated to the service of God, and they're in his throne room. And if you think of like the tabernacle or the temple, they're in the, they're in the holy of holies kind of scenario. These are, these are pretty amazing beings themselves. But they understand and they help us understand the right response to God's majestic holiness is always humility and worship. Humility and worship. Isaiah goes on. He says, they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What an amazing experience. Isaiah comes into God's presence in, in, in one way, and he, he experiences that God is holy. He experiences that, that God's holiness reveals to him an elevated, a heightened sense of his own moral state in contrast to God, that he is deeply in trouble. Look at what is God's holiness. What's the really core essence of it? Last week we, we just mentioned it, and we're going to think about it in terms of, of purity. First of all, think about what it is, and then we'll take a while to think about what it isn't, because sometimes we understand things well that way as well. It's it's purity, that God is morally pure. Remember Moses, he he saw the burning bush, and, and we won't take time to look at it, but Ezekiel saw God, and that's a really wild one. Ezekiel sees God, and there's this he says he's like glowing metal, and, and part of him looks like fire. And there's, in his presence, there's all this brilliant light and this sort of radiance that's like rainbows. And, and John, Jesus' very good friend, sees, sees God in the throne room, and he mentions rainbows and radiance and lightning. 
and, and lamps and a sea of glass like crystal and just all this light. And, and it's kind of a fascinating thing, but, but people who, who see God experience this moral purity, this moral attribute of God as physical light. In fact, John writes at one point, and, and he's, using a, he's using a figure, but he just goes on to say, you know what? I, I give up. God is light. Of course, he doesn't mean, you know, solar radiation. He doesn't mean what's coming out of the lamps. Light's used in a few different ways. Sometimes in the Bible, we read uh, light being used as a figure for truth in contrast to falsehood. That's not what he's going for either. You'll notice in, in 1 John chapter 1 that John is talking about a moral aspect of God. And it's an interesting question. Can someone's moral condition manifest physically in their presence, in their, in their face? It's an interesting thing. And I, I, at first I thought, that's kind of a strange thing. We, we don't experience anything like that. And then I realized, well, actually, our emotional condition is often expressed physically, isn't it? And sometimes we get it wrong. You know, we look at someone and we read them wrong, but we're still, we're seeing something expressed physically that's emotional inside. Could someone's moral condition kind of come out on the outside as well? Yeah, you pro- not, not probably. You definitely don't want to do this, but I don't know, have you ever seen someone and, and thought, wow, there's a lot of evil going on in there, Right? And you've got to be careful with that one. I think most of us ex- have experienced from time to time seeing someone and going, wow, that person is really struggling with something pretty dark. And of course, that's a, a negative example. But, but can you see purity? Again, we're not good at this. I'm just saying, you know, it, this is an interesting concept for us. And it made me think of a, well, you know, what we probably most of us would think of. Uh, an infant. You know, take a baby couple days old, right? Get them a bath, get them fed, get them some of those nice fuzzy jammies. You get them sleeping and you look at their face, right? Just, there's like peace there. It's like, now that's sleep. Now that's why we all say we'd like to sleep like a baby, right? And what's going on there? Well, a lot of it is, you know, baby stuff and human stuff, but I think some of it we see innocence, don't we? See, here is a person who's going to sleep. They're not worried at all about how they yelled at their kids today, right? How they're angry with their friend. How they tried to run someone off the road or they sure would have liked to. They haven't done any of that stuff. They sleep like a baby. And I don't know, it's just this little bit of a glimpse of of purity, coming through there. Now, magnify that a thousand times, a million times, I don't know, however many times, and apparently with God, you begin to see holiness as light. It, it shines, it comes out of him, it's so forceful. It's bright in your face, in your eyes, and you can't deny it. You can't do anything but say, that's a holy God. Now, I still think it's something that's kind of hard for us to to understand. Sometimes, you know, you understand things well by, by what it produced, what effect it has, if you can't understand it exactly. For example, uh, radiation. I, I, don't, I don't know what radiation is. Uh, I really don't. I took physics. Actually, well, it's probably unfair to say I took physics. I sat in a room when I was 19 
at a college where physics was being taught. But anyway, I don't know what radiation is, but I do, I, I do kind of get some of the effects, right? I understand that some people have the skill to control it enough that they could take a picture of the bones in your foot, you know? And if, for example, you fell off your roof, they can say, ha, <gasps> idiot. <laughs> and they laugh at you, and, you know, all that's because of radiation. So anyway, you, you, you can know the effects of things. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this is, this is recommended to us and not immediately at first about God, but I think we can take it there. Paul, remember, we were here just a couple months ago. says, now you were... Once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Why? Because the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. He's saying, you know, you used to be dark, but now you have light. You have the God who is holy. You have the Holy Spirit guiding you, producing things in you that you could not produce. Oh, before, you could do some things that you would call good. But now, God in his holiness can produce through you goodness that is truly good. For example, it's, it's always driven by a pure motive, as God's goodness is. It's never any of that mixed up stuff, like, yeah, it was a nice thing, but you're trying to get something, aren't you? It's, it's uh, truthfulness that holiness produces that is accurate and consistent and helpful in contrast to some of the the things we produce that we call truthfulness. See, our actions are a mix of good and evil because internally we're still kind of a a jumbled mix. But we we can count on God because at his core he is holy and that core attribute prompts all these other things so that goodness is thoroughly and completely purely good. Never an impure motive. It is goodness that is truly good. It is love that is really loving. It is justice that is just. Holiness is God's purity. Now, here's a, here's a few things about what it isn't. Sometimes we can understand things from that angle as well. First of all, he never sins. I know you've heard this before. Isaiah senses this in contrast to himself. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I see this holy God, and the first thing it makes me aware of is my own terrible state. Woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's interesting that he he uses lips here. Some people have suggested that he, he says that because he's a prophet, and now he realizes that maybe he hasn't the, been the best prophet possible. You know, it's a speaking kind of job. I don't know, maybe. I think that's a problem because he goes on to talk about, I live among a people of unclean lips. I think lips just are a great focal point or illustration for where we have problems in life, isn't it? Think of how many times you sin or you have difficulties and it all finds its way out through your mouth, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? It's not what you eat, what you take into your mouth that causes you to be evil. It's what comes out of your mouth <laughs> coming from an impure heart. That's what you have to watch out for. Isaiah says, that, that, that is me. Unclean lips. John says, God, on the other hand, not only is he light, but he is light where there is a complete 
absence of darkness. There is no impurity. You see, it's not that, that God is ignorant of evil. You see, that's really, that's really what that infant is, is he has that little experiential innocence. But that little infant is wired to sin the first chance he gets. Boy, he'll be there. <laughs> not true with God. He doesn't go there. He understands sin. He understands evil better than we do. Remember, he's the one who warned Adam and Eve. Satan had it wrong. Adam had it wrong. Eve had it wrong. God was the one who knew which way was up. Really, it's not surprising. You don't have to beat your kids or rob a bank to know it's not a good idea. Do you really? I don't think so. God says, I don't have to experience this stuff to know it'll kill you. God never goes there. He never chooses it. He never acts on it. He never sins. He's never tempted. He's never even tempted. And here Isaiah says something I think is maybe one of the most fascinating parts in in this whole section. He says, not only am I a man of unclean lips, but I live among a people of unclean lips. Now that's really interesting to me because what do we normally do if we're feeling like there's going to be accusation or guilt or anything in that category. Boy, anything we can get out from underneath, we're like, that's his problem, right? You know, when your mom catches you and you've been playing with some friends in the family room, she walks in and it's a mess, you know, and the vase is broken. You're like, I didn't do that, right? But somehow in God's presence... Isaiah feels compelled to run really fast to corporate confession. He doesn't say, you know what? Hold on, God. I'd like to point out that I haven't done all that other stuff. He's like, I live among people with unclean lips. I I wonder if he starts to to think, I've heard things I shouldn't have to hear, but but I've listened And, and isn't it true, don't you find, I, I fear, follow this, we do that, we hear things we shouldn't have to, a, a people of unclean lips, and then we begin to expect unholiness around us. And from there we go somewhere else, we, we come to a place where we're comfortable around impurity. And then we say it's even natural. It's a frightening thing, but I'm convinced that, that for too many of us, there are people in the world who know that if they could convince you something that's sinful is actually cool, you couldn't resist that. It, it, because holiness now for us becomes uncool, unstylish. It's, it's embarrassing. For, if someone thought you were pure... Would that be a good thing, or would that be something you maybe wouldn't want your friends to be thinking of you? Oh, well, that person likes holiness? (laughs) Isaiah says, we go there in our minds. Even if we don't participate, we're infected. I'm infected. James says, God's never infected. He's not tempted. It's not just that he chooses not to sin. 
He's not even infected by it. He does not change his attitude towards it. He doesn't change his understanding of it because he knows it to be evil and destructive. He knows the goodness that lies in holiness. God's not even tempted. And then, lastly, he never compromises. Isaiah says, "My, you know, I'm, I'm in serious trouble here. My eyes have seen the King, the, the Lord Almighty. Remember Moses fell on his face and hid his face, and, and then the people wandered around, and there was the mountain, and the people, you know, couldn't go up on the mountain, and it was really clear. You aren't supposed to just waltz in and try and look at God, okay? Some people died trying to do that because they were just cavalier about it. And now Isaiah is really worried. <laughs> what can I conclude? I'm convinced of your holiness, God. I am thoroughly, I'm, I'm shaking here. Woe to me. I'm thoroughly convinced of my sinfulness. The only thing I can conclude is I'm dead. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrong. Isaiah knows this. But Habakkuk asks an interesting question because he's really troubled by some things that are happening in his day. He says, why, God, if you are holy, if you can't look at evil, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And here Habakkuk asks a question that many of us ask every day (laughs) or frequently when we think about it. Which is it? Is, is God holy and won't look upon the, the treacherous, the sinful? Or is he loving? Does God not have a dilemma? Who is God? Isaiah believes himself to be dead, and it says, And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Well, there is a contradiction in our minds, and we can't work it out. But I think that's part of the point. You can't work it out. But it's not a dilemma for God. He provides a way for Isaiah... Isaiah really doesn't even know at this point what that solution is. We have the incredible privilege of knowing the solution to this great dilemma. Will God be holy or will God be loving? Pastor Bob, would you come and finish us out tonight thinking about that? So in a few minutes we're going to take communion and what I want to do is uh, see if I can make a connection for us between what we've been talking about, the holiness of God. And the cross of Christ. And how we get from one to the other. As Pastor Bill has said, uh, part of God's holiness means that he is pure. That he never sins. That he's never tempted. That he never compromises. And, and on and on it goes. All the great things about God. But, but one of the things that comes along with all of this. And when you look at the, uh, the word that uh, is used in Hebrew for Um, holiness, and in the New Testament, there's also often another idea attached to that, and that is the idea of separateness. The thought there is that the separateness of God, the holiness of God, the perfection of God is something that separates him from everyone and everything else. 
And of course, we understand the Bible says that our sin has separated us from our God. Every sinful word, every sinful thought, action, reaction. So that poses a problem for us. How do we connect with God who is perfect and holy and and we are not? How do we do that? In Isaiah 57, it tells us this. It says, for this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is what? Is holy. So he's holy. And he says, I live in a high and holy place. Now watch this. So that makes sense to us. He lives in a, in a separate place, away from all sin and impurity and darkness and all that. But, and this is the surprising part, part but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So we have kind of this, uh, this tension here that God is completely separate, that he's completely holy, that he lives in this, in this separate place, and yet, somehow at the same time, God lives with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. We would use the word humble to describe that person, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, what it says, and we see this in James and in other passages of Scripture, that God comes near to those who humble themselves. Now, this is a great thing. This is something that we love about God. To those who are willing to recognize God's perfection and his holy otherness, it says that God is willing to come and dwell with them. To those who will confess their own imperfections and their sin, and for those who, along with that, will confess their need for a Savior, as uh, we have done, it says that the beautiful thing is God comes and dwells with us. He, He lives with us. In fact... He lives in us. Now, of course, when we think about the holiness of God, a tension is created there. And that is, maybe we could put it this way, we could think about um, compassion, which is part of God's holiness. Compassion means that God has this deep, abiding, drawing, driving kind of love for you. As one who he planned, as one who he created. Yes, he saw you fall and he knows everything about you. And yet, God is just, he has this unbelievable love for you. So on the one hand, there's the compassion of God. On the other hand, there's what we might call the justice of God. And that is that God cannot tolerate sin. And Now, this is difficult for us because I think we can often identify more and get more excited about the compassion of God than the justice of God. We, we can see sometimes and embrace that God loves us and wants to draw near to us. Sometimes, when it comes to the justice of God, we wonder, why, why, does, why can't God just let that go? Why couldn't God just overlook that? I mean, I understand murder and, you know, some of that stuff, but I just said a little thing or did a little thing. What's the deal with that? And yet God being holy and being perfect, he cannot tolerate any sin. So here's the problem. It says that God is completely compassionate for us and it it drives him, but our sin has separated us from God and the justice of God cannot allow God to just pretend it never happened. So how does God deal with that? How are they reconciled? Now, there's a lot of different ideas today about how uh, that bridge is reconciled. Some people say it's through our effort. It's through religion. If we get the right religion and we do the right things, if we follow the right ritual and say it the right way and pray the right words and do the right things and give the right stuff and all that, that somehow that will make us worthy of God. It will help bridge the gap, the distance. Uh, Our behavior can help us earn God's approval. But instead, we know, if you were here when we went through Ephesians, again and again and again and again, it says that's not how the bridge is gapped between the compassion of God and the justice of God and how we connect with Him. Instead, the Bible's very clear. God never intended for us 
to bridge that gap. He, it was always his plan. It was never plan B. It was always plan A that he would come and take care of that himself for us. And so God came down. He came down as a, as a man. It says he lived among us. He, he, he uh, lived in a body like ours. He faced all the things that we faced. That you have to think about the, how amazing this is. A, a holy God has come down to inhabit a body like ours and to live among us. And yet, the Bible says, he remained holy during that whole time. If you ever wondered, like, we're looking at pictures of God in heaven and what he's like, and you're wondering, what would that look like on earth? Just read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, because you will get a picture of what holiness looks like on this earth. When we look at the Gospels, we see what holy words sound like. They're the things Jesus said. We'll see what uh, holy reactions look like, what holy choices look like, what do holy relationships look like, even what does holy righteous anger look like. We can see that in the person of Christ. So this holy God comes down, and, and he lives among us, and he reveals God, and then the Bible says that he did something uh, that people didn't see coming. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it describes it this way, God made him who had no sin, that's Christ, to be, notice this, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now there's a theological stamp or word that we'll put on this verse right here. This is kind of the definitive verse that describes the word impute. I-M-P-U-T-E. It's a word that we use. Uh, it, it's, it appears in the Bible and it's a theological word. Um, it actually comes from a banking term, which means to transfer uh, something from one person's account to another person's account. So it, it'd be the idea that God took something of his and transferred it into, you can think of it this way, if we all have a spiritual record, it says that God did something with that record. It says that our sin, our, our sinful portfolio, if you will, our permanent record in heaven that God has on us with all the things we've done and the sins we've you know, committed and all that, that that was taken, that account of sin, uh, and it was, it was transferred from, from us to Jesus Christ. So all of the stuff we've ever done wrong and all the sin in our account was, was transferred to Christ. And so he took all of that upon himself. He took our sinful portfolio. He, he willingly had our sins transferred to his account. Now, he never committed those sins, but he's taken responsibility for those sins. And the Bible says that he went to the cross, because on the cross, the justice of God was satisfied, because every sin was paid for. Every sinful thought and action and word and response was taken to the cross, and there it was paid for. So the justice of God is now satisfied. And then the Bible says that we could say, uh, take Christ's spiritual portfolio, which was full of nothing but righteousness, and then he transferred that, he imputed that to our spiritual account. So when Jesus came here, he already had a spiritual account built up that was filled with nothing but righteousness. That is a right standing with God. Now, in this idea of righteousness, it means things like perfection and innocence and to be just. So, he brought a perfect portfolio here to the earth and technically we could say that even though he lived a righteous life, he didn't really add anything to his portfolio because it was already perfectly full. All he did was the life of Christ demonstrated the, the quality of the righteousness of God on this earth. It established it. It showed us what it looks like and feels like and sounds like. So Jesus' righteousness, his, his perfect spiritual account was transferred to ours and ours to him. So, of course, when we received his righteousness, what that means is this. 
when God opens up your, uh, your spiritual portfolio and he looks in there, what he sees is the life of Jesus Christ. That's what he sees. And that means that now we have a right standing with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And the Bible says that all of this happened, this whole transfer, if you will, this switching of the books, all this happened at the cross. That's where it took place. And it had always been God's plan to do that for us. It wasn't plan B. It's what he had always planned. We're going to uh, celebrate that whole concept by taking communion tonight. And uh, when we take communion, what we do is we remember what Christ did for us on that cross. We think about the, the bread, that is the body of Christ that was, that was nailed to that cross, that body that, that bore our sin, our transgression, that body that was, that was put on that cross, that hung on that cross. And we think about the blood of Christ that was shed for us, that makes us clean, that imputes to us the righteousness of God. What an amazing, wonderful thing that God has done for us. I'm going to pray for us, and then the men are going to come up and pass out the bread and the cup, and I'm just going to invite you. Uh, you might want to pray, uh, and whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and take that bread and that cup, and then uh, we'll close the service. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for chance we've had tonight to think about your perfection, your holiness, the fact that even though we were lost, separated from you because of our sin, it didn't catch you by surprise, it didn't make you want to give up. Father, just kicked your compassion into high gear. And you did what you had always intended to do. You came here to pursue the humble. Those willing to confess their sin. And Father, that would be us tonight. We would confess that we are sinners. But it would also be those who would be willing to confess that you are holy. That you are perfection. That you are completely righteous. And Father, we would be those who would confess tonight that we need a Savior. And that Savior was revealed to us in Jesus Christ, who not only sought us and came and lived among us, but gave his body, he gave his life, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Fathers, we take this bread and this cup tonight. We would do it with a sense of awe, with a sense of wonder and Father with a sense of humility because that is where we find you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said.